I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I am Leon Gethler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 31 in our series for 2020. And today's date is Friday, the 4th of September. First, I'll be talking to the Australian CEO of global microfinance leader, Grameen, which is committed to boosting employment through supporting people on low incomes to set up their own small businesses in Australia's post-COVID future. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about how governments and bureaucracies should close the gap for Indigenous Australians. But now, let's talk to Adam Mooney. Adam, we have to talk about Grameen, and at the moment, the market is imploding. We have uh, something like 800,000 jobs have been lost nationwide, and it's continuing, and and particularly affects women. They've been more adversely affected than men. What can Grameen do about it? Well, thanks, Leon. And Grameen Australia is now starting. It's bringing a very successful model. It's worked all around the world to reach over 300 million women uh, in particular, to start their own micro enterprises. And, and so this has really taken the principles and experience that have worked uh, in countries like Bangladesh, Philippines, Cambodia, but importantly into so-called developed economies like uh, United States and, and other places and bringing that to an Australian setting. And really this is a, a golden opportunity where we're all uh, reimagining um, what's possible. Uh, the, the glass is either half full or, or half empty. We see it as half full where uh, all around the world, for example, right now, there are millions of women that are being uh, adaptive, 
in making masks and, and involved in cleaning activities through their own micro enterprises. So as we see national income support mechanisms like JobKeeper and JobSeeker tapering off, we're coming into the market at, the, at a time to be able to, uh, to make sure that we're seeing this incentive to work uh, that the government's so keen on, that we're also keen on, and providing opportunity to work. So for micro enterprises in communities, particularly people working from home is a speciality of ours in supporting women and, and men to be able to form groups of five or six people, develop their own business idea, start that business idea, get a small loan from Grameen and have mentoring training if, it, if and where it's needed, and, and really being able to uh, people to have uh, more economic confidence and more certainty around the future through through income generation. That's very interesting. Now, how does Grameen actually work in terms of providing a loan and in terms of helping the business get set up? What we do is in, in communities that we've been invited to operate uh, through, uh, for example, we're, we're very focused on, on women and, and we think that this model will work very well in Aboriginal communities and, and, and where other Aboriginal women live, migrant communities and so on. So we'll, we'll seek that invitation with that community and find two to three to five female leaders that, that want to be able to form a, a group. And the, the Grameen model is unique in that we don't take any physical collateral, but, but develop what's called social collateral, where a group feels allegiance to each other, support with each other, that the business ideas of those five women will be presented and with a, a cash flow analysis, marketing analysis, risk analysis, logistics capability, and, and all, all common basic business principles. And we will then say, well, okay, what do you need for working capital, to buy fixed capital items like uh, sewing machines, weaving looms, whatever it may be that's required to start the business and provide a small loan of maybe $5,000 or $10,000 repayable, um, you know, repayments matched to when the income's expected to be realised and with repayments every every fortnight. But we encourage the, the clients, the groups to come together every fortnight to share their experience, to share that connection and share what's worked. And this is really the best of community-led, strength-based economic development. And this is what we're all yearning for in the world right now, Leon, this human connectedness and, and willingness to, to, for others to, to, to back each other and support each other as we move forward. And the money itself is actually a very small scale. I mean, we're talking small capital here, aren't we? We are, yes. Yeah. So loans of $5,000, $10,000 at, at an, an interest rate of maybe 10 or 12%. That's negligible, really, when you're repaying it over a shorter period of time, but it's an annual interest rate, but will be an effective interest cost of, of maybe 4 or 5%. We, what we've seen all, all around the world, particularly in the States, is a 99% repayment rate for, for these loans that are being advanced. But more importantly, we're seeing a transformation of confidence, of dignity, of, uh, of control and, and economic security. Um, and that's, that's, not a, that's, that's in everyone's interest. But we also know, particularly, that uh, female micro-entrepreneurs reinvest income that they make through their business in very socially productive pursuits. So uh, in the family through nutritious food, education uh, and other uh, development, health and, and other development within the household. And that has a significant economic sort of trickle through um, and, and ripple effect that, that is very, very compelling to, to economists and, and, and health professionals alike. And of course, uh, what you're doing is you're actually building communities by doing that, aren't you? We are. This is one of the great things. And our founder, Professor Muhammad Yunus, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 
Uh, he's an, a, a former World Bank economist who literally was, was approached by a woman in a village. Uh, he wasn't sure whether she was asking for, for charity or for a grant, but she said, no, no, I, if you can give me enough money to buy materials that I can convert and value add during the day. He, uh, and so he, he provided that small loan, but he didn't think about it. He saw the woman uh, the, the later uh, that afternoon after she'd been to the market sold all of her produce and he got back not only uh, the amount that he only wanted his his amount back but she said no i insist in giving you an extra 20 percent for your trust and faith in me and that transmission of human from human to human trust both from the borrower and the lender is something very very profound that we all need in in the world especially today when we see the economic model being turned on its head large corporations not being able to give the certainty that they were were able to once now uh you you of course are targeting women and but also uh, you, you mentioned aboriginal and migrant communities and you can be doing work with them as well is that right if that's right well the model this collective model of peer-based lending really lends itself well to work within aboriginal culture where there is a strong loyalty and and and, and and attachment to clan and to, and to community. Um, so it really complements the existing community structure and, 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 and clan identity. Equally in migrant communities around Australia and around the world, we've seen this model become very successful where in a group there may be, for example, uh, uh, an Australian migrant that has maybe a Vietnamese background, a Sudanese background, Lebanese background, all meeting together and sharing their business ideas and stories. And what it also does, as you say, it, it really does bring communities together, demystifies what uh, people from other cultures where uh, in this uh, increasingly divided world, it brings people together to understand, to, to share stories, to work together and, and, and for all of us to see each other as the people, human beings, simply aspiring to, to live with each other and to, and to relate well with each other. Now, what's exciting about this is potentially it can create a whole lot of social entre entrepreneurial businesses, can't it? It can. Uh, coronavirus has caused the economic machine to sleep. And to be, let's be very careful about how we go back to or create a world that that we all aspire to, that, that this uh, uh, rampant pursuit of, of profit maximisation through capitalism is something we need to uh, to rein in and, and, and find within reason. So we're encouraging the, the businesses to do whatever they want with their with their, their income and their, their retained earnings. But we know many of the businesses uh, want to model their own economic structure on, 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 on Grameen as an organisation, as a social business, investing surpluses back to reach more and more people. So to the extent that we can do that, that's something that we encourage. So cafes, restaurants, textile businesses that are all investing to grow and bring more and more people into that enterprise. And, and, and really, that, again, that's grassroots, community-led. Community know best about how to support those that need it most in the community. And that's uh, an, an absolute aim uh, of this program. That's right, Liam. So how's the response been? so far? Overwhelmingly positive. We've only really let people know over the last month about our, our plans. We've had, in the last month, we've had approaches from large banks, insurance companies, professional services firms, uh, federal and state governments are, uh, we're talking to right now about catalytic uh, grants to get us up and running. Uh, we also have some philanthropic investors that, uh, that have seen the Grameen model work overseas, who value the importance and aspirations of women in our economy so overwhelmingly positive we're we're actually looking at uh, starting pilot programs in places like broadmeadows 
Heidelberg, Footscray, Wyndham, where there are large uh, overlaps with our, uh, our target client group in Victoria, but also in New South Wales, places like Fairfield, Queensland, Inanala, remote communities in the Northern Territory and East Arnhem Land have all been approaching us and saying, this is something that resonates with me and my worldview, and I really want to be part of it to either support or to connect my clients to this, this wonderful and successful initiative that's worked well overseas. Well, what the great irony is that COVID-19 could have given you a great push-along in this. You're ex that's exactly right. It has been a, an, a, an accelerator, a catalyst uh, for acceleration. There's no doubt about that. And particularly when we, we see large, significant, unexpected unemployment and this disjointed workforce that, of course, we all want certainty, we all want stability, but in a world where we're increasingly having to make our own path and do it in a way with our own values. So I think this model uh, is, is the Grameen model. Uh, it really does help people to, to bring that to life. And, and again, it's a, it's a great uh, investable opportunity for government where we're seeing large numbers of people coming out of an organised workforce into a, an informal workforce with skills, with, with you know, characteristics, with market, uh, market knowledge of their own community being able to apply that market knowledge. And that brings not only economic opportunity and reinvestment, uh, and it also avoids income support for government to pay, continue to pay JobKeeper and JobSeeker as the government aims to taper those, uh, those investments off over time. They are there to provide a foundation for people to become economically active again. And I think this is the, that exact opportunity that government's looking for to be present in many communities, to, to have those small loans, to buy the equipment, to get the training and the mentoring. The simple act, uh, Leon, of, of, of uh, the loans themselves to micro entrepreneurs being used in a stimulatory way to buy office equipment, to buy fixed equipment, to buy embroidery, digitizing, fishing boats, whatever the, the vocation may be, will be a significant economic stimulus provided by, by investment by others uh, to match governments who might support sort of catalytic grants and local councils supporting catalytic grants in each local community that we're aiming to move into. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch and uh, good on you, Adam, and we'll be watching it very closely and congratulations for setting it up. Thanks so much, Leon. I really appreciate your support. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Gruen. Well, Nicholas Gruen, the Productivity Commission has just put out a report proposing an Indigenous evaluation strategy. What is it and what is its significance? So governments, as we all know, have got lots of problems with Indigenous policies. We spend many tens of thousand dollars per Indigenous person of government out, in government outlays, and Indigenous disadvantage continues rumbling on. Government policies are kind of famously unsatisfactory, and, the, and, and government governments commit to Indigenous policies and then the, is given that the programs don't work, their latest fad, I'll call it, uh, although there's some good things to be said for it, which has been going for four or five years now, is to say that really we need to be much more evidence-based in our policy and so we should have a lot more evaluation. There is $40 million over four years being made available for evaluation of Indigenous programs and the Productivity Commission was given the job of coming up with a what, what, what could sound more sensible than an, an Indigenous evaluation strategy. So the draft of that has just come out. 
and that's that's where we're at at the moment. Yes, but you're much more sceptical about it. Uh, when writing about Indigenous policy, you refer to Lord Acton's fault line. Would you care to elaborate on that? Yeah, so one of the things that I've, I've used, this, it's a joke. Uh, the joke is from Lord Acton and uh, Gough Whitlam used to quote it. And Lord Acton said, I think around about the turn of the 20th century, that rowing was the perfect preparation for public life because it had enabled you to face in one direction while you travel in the other. And I've thrown that joke in as an aside for, you know, in my writing about government for about 20 years. And when, in, an, in an essay that's about to be published on Inside Story on Indigenous evaluation, I decided that that was a mistake and that, in fact, Lord Acton's fault line should be take this, this, this gap between what we say and what we do, what governments say and what they do should be made completely central to the analysis, not a throwaway line. And let me give you some examples. Governments are constantly announcing that they will cut over regulation. Well, how's that going? Uh, so what they do is they set up a Lord Atkin regime, if you like, and they have a regime and they'll have uh, regulators will have to go through regulatory impact statements. They're facing in one direction and the direction they're facing in is to tackle over regulation. But every time a particular regulation turns up, uh, the government departments tick all the boxes in the regulatory impact statements and the regulatory impact statements turn into a, a farce. Another example is freedom of information legislation. I'm not against freedom of information regulation or, or legislation. It has done some good. But the problem is that every time you face in the direction of freedom of information, there are all kinds of mechanisms in the system. Firstly, you can more or less pretend to do it. And, you know, the, the legislation doesn't have any teeth. But if the legislation does have teeth, then conversations go offline uh, and all kinds of second round effects occur so that the government can be seen to embrace freedom of information, but in fact, the, this goal recedes further into the distance. And that's one of the things that's going on in Indigenous policy. So governments say one thing, but they actually do another. Uh, how does that work in Indigenous policy? Well, you might remember the Northern Territory intervention announced by John Howard uh, six months before the 2007 election. It certainly looked like an election stunt to me. It certainly did to the Aboriginal community. Uh, we had the army in, we had the Racial Discrimination Act waived for the duration of the policy. Uh, and now you can argue that extreme measures were called for. The, the dramatic thing was that the extreme measures were cooked up over not much more than a weekend by the Prime Minister and his minister, uh, and I, I no doubt a few senior ministers, and they were highly unsatisfactory. Now, I don't, I mean, this was, a, this was a Prime Minister, John Howard, who talked about practical reconciliation and said his real commitment wasn't to all this symbolic stuff, but, but it was to improving Aboriginal lives. The, the words and the actions didn't line up. More recently, Malcolm Turnbull, shortly after coming into government, said he was an evidence guy. Uh, he said, why would you pursue a policy that isn't backed by the evidence? And fairly shortly afterwards, 
started talking about income management in Aboriginal communities. Now, income management, most of your listeners will know, is a policy in which if uh, an Aboriginal person or if, if, the per, if the target of the policy is on, receives a dole payment, a large part of that is corralled. To, it has to be made on acceptable expenses, groceries and so on. And the idea is to prevent this turning up in purchases of drug, drugs and alcohol. It sounds like a good policy. It, it, that's why it's good retail politics. But it happens to be one of the policies that has been extensively tested. And, it, the, and, the, and the evaluations tell you that it, it isn't very satisfactory. It has some small benefits. It has some costs. Some of those are large. It demoralizes communities. And there is a small role for it, it seems, particularly kind of where you would expect where communities or families actually ask for it. But that isn't how we do it. And this isn't just at the political level. There's constant reference to following the evidence. But if you actually look at what happens, that isn't what happens. Right, okay. okay. So the government is now focusing on the importance of evaluation, but you're sceptical. What's the problem? Well, again, in the area of evaluation, look a little more carefully. Evaluation was an important part of ATSIC, the, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission that was abolished towards the end of the Howard years. I'm not here to say ATSIC was a good or a bad thing. I don't actually know enough about it. What I do know that ATSIC ran a substantial evaluation operation and when ATSIC was closed down, it was shunted off, I think, to the Department of Finance for a while and fell into abeyance. That was something that our bureaucrats probably could have prevented, uh, but it was our bureaucrats who started talking about how important it was for, their, for this whole story, for, for Aboriginal policy to be evidence-based. And then they tell us that, that it'll be evidence-based if we just do more evaluation. Now, that's another, that's another situation where you look for Lord Acton. If it doesn't work with you know, what you might have thought was a relatively easier area like regulation review, where we have various requirements that regulations are evaluated before we go ahead with them, and those don't work. Those, that, that regime does not work to make uh, regulation, particularly evidence-based. Why would we expect that to happen with evaluation? Now, the Productivity Commission, which has been reporting on Indigenous disadvantage through the Close the Gap program for about a decade, their, their draft strategy argues for, for evaluation to be independent and for evaluation to be published. Sounds great. But the thing is that this independence ends up taking a form which is extremely like regulation review. That is, there is a little independent agency that oversights evaluation, but the evaluation itself will be commissioned by and, and or, or done by the departments, the line departments that run the programs. So they have a great deal of influence over, what, over the, the people who are evaluating what they do. So we're sort of replicating this structure that doesn't work. And it doesn't work because it enables people 
to face in one direction while traveling in the other direction. Very much Lord Acton and uh, very much a Clayton's dependence. I mean, you've proposed an alternative model, the evaluator general about which we've talked before. Can you explain what it is and how it would develop, how it would help? It's a long story, the evaluator general, but uh, my idea is that simply imposing independence on evaluation is going to create such conflicts between the, the agencies delivering programs and the agencies evaluating them that I'm not at all confident that that model will work. And what I've tried to do is to build something which in some ways resembles or is part of my thinking, part of my, the inspiration for this was the production line at Toyota, which sounds like a pretty strange thing to say. And the thing about Toyota is that what Toyota did now, several decades ago, was to realise that the way to get productivity in a plant wasn't to have senior people imposing evaluation on junior people, because what would happen is something like Lord Acton's problem, that you create all these conflicts of interest. The point is that people at the top rely on people at the bottom for the information that they give them so they can't at the same time hold them accountable in that highly adversarial way. And what uh, the Toyota production system does is it begins with the presumption that teams of people want to do a good job, not a bad job. They'd actually prefer to improve their productivity so long as it isn't simply working harder and harder and harder and harder. And so what Toyota did was they spent literally 10 times the amount of resources training their workforce, and they gave their workforce all kinds of tools and knowledge in that to enable them to measure their own performance and to optimize it, and then to go and see other teams elsewhere in the factory and, and jointly optimize their performance where they had some sort of interdependence. Now, the evaluator general is not a top-down mechanism like an auditor general, which checks up on people and makes sure that things have been done in a compliant way. What an evaluator general does is it has an independent evaluator. It, it's, it, it, it introduces a kind of, well, a structural separation between evaluating what's happening and doing it that there needs to be close collaboration between both of those functions, but it's a bottom-up process. And the idea is that people out in the field are given the tools to improve their performance and measure their performance in order to improve it. If you can do that, and if you can harness their own desire to do a good job, and most people involved in these programs do want to do a good job, then you can build up from there up to the top with a structure of information and reporting that has integrity and huge improvements in the uh, efficacy of these programs as people find little ways to improve what they're doing. Well, that would be a much smarter approach because you would actually get things done. You would get things done and it is completely extraordinary what Toyota did with labor productivity on the line. Now, it sounds like a funny thing to talk about labor productivity when we're talking about indigenous disadvantage, but we're trying to make complex programs work. And 
uh, Toyota improved labor productivity. It, it beat labor productivity in other factories by a factor of four. In other words, the, the programs we have are highly dysfunctional. I think they could be made much more functional and that would generate huge amounts of more bang for, for each of the bucks that we put into Aboriginal, uh, Aboriginal programs. Nicholas Green, those are very wise words and very fascinating concept. And let's hope it's taken up. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, investors should position for the rising odds of President Donald Trump winning re-election, according to J.P. Morgan Chase. Betting odds that earlier had Trump well behind challenger Joe Biden are now nearly even, largely due to the impact on public opinion of violence around protests, as well as potential bias in polls, says strategist Marco Kolanovic. Based on past research, there could be a shift of 5 to 10 points in polls from Democrats to Republicans if the perception of protests turns from peaceful to violence, he said. People giving inaccurate answers could artificially skew polls in favour of Biden by 5 to 6%, he added. And Australia is officially in its first recession for almost three decades, with the June quarter GDP numbers showing the economy went backwards by 7%, the worst fall on record, and a second straight contraction. The quarterly slump is worse than the Great Depression, with annual growth now the lowest since World War II, after shrinking to negative 6.3% from 1.4% in the March quarter, official Australian Bureau of Statistics figures show. The June quarter contraction follows a 0.3% fall in the March quarter, locking in two consecutive quarters of negative growth required for a technical recession. The June quarter hit was worse than the market's economists' expectations of a 6% fall in the quarter and a 5.2% fall annually. Household consumption growth collapsed minus 12.1% in the quarter, down further from minus 1.1% fall in the March quarter, and now pulls annual consumption growth down to negative 12.7%. The fall in consumption, which makes up about 60% of GDP, was driven by a 17.6% fall in services consumption for the June quarter due to the introduction of COVID-19 restrictions. Total private business investment contracted 6.5% down further from 0.8% contraction in the March quarter, and is now down 7.6% for the year. And official figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed exports of services fell 18.4% in the June quarter, but services imports collapsed 49%. And the Reserve Bank has kept official interest rates unchanged at a record low of 0.25%, but expanded a scheme that allows banks to secure cheap funding to $200 billion until June next year. The central bank also gave further indications it would take further action on monetary easing if required and that a recovery in employment would be some months away. And Australian house prices fell for a fourth consecutive month in August as a slump in the Melbourne market, the centre of a renewed COVID-19 outbreak, weighed heavily on the national picture and expected higher unemployment continues to cloud the outlook. Property values in major cities dropped 0.5% last month. CoreLogic data released Tuesday showed Prices in Melbourne slumped 1.2%, with the city's 5 million residents having endured around two months of lockdown conditions to contain the spread of the coronavirus. Through the course of the pandemic, Melbourne has fallen 4.6%. In Sydney and Brisbane, the rate of decline eased, while prices held up or improved in other major cities, reflecting the link between market performance and the severity of social distancing policies, according to Tim Lawless, head of research at CoreLogic. Sydney's decline cooled to 0.5% from 0.9% in July. And Lawless warns we could start to see the rate of decline becoming a little bit worse. 
and household spending in Victoria has slumped more than 30% since late June, and the Morrison government expects more Victorians will soon be on JobKeeper than the rest of the country combined. The number of Victorians on unemployment benefits has also skyrocketed, up by almost 28,000 people since the beginning of the second lockdown, with more than half signing on the first three weeks of August. The devastation of Victoria's second coronavirus wave was laid bare in New Commonwealth Treasury analysis, which shows the full extent of Australia's two-speed recovery and reveals Victoria's being left behind. The analysis showed, while all states were showing similar improvements between April and late June, the number of Victorians on unemployment benefits had since increased by 7.2%, while household spending had plummeted 30%, led by a 45% fall in discretionary spending. And Victorians have predictably closed their wallets in lockdown, with the state locking a 22% plunge in overall consumer spending compared to before the pandemic. The spending slump is pronounced in Victoria, with overall spending down by just 5% nationwide and only 3% in New South Wales. Victorian cafes have been hit particularly hard, with spending down 42% in the sector. In New South Wales, cafe spending in late August actually increased. Fashion and leisure spending also plunged in Victoria, down 54% on normal levels, compared to the 25% increase in New South Wales. And the pandemic has gutted local movie houses, with cinemas in the ACT, Adelaide and Perth all having shut for good in recent months. Like many other sectors, the industry's 15,000 Australian employees have found themselves largely reliant on JobKeeper subsidies. But as blockbuster films begin to slowly trickle out for global release, Melbourne cinemas remain shut and Sydney theatres are limited to 25% capacity. The industry now takes in just 10-15% to 15% of typical income. And the acquisition by IWF of NAB's wealth management arm, MLC, brings to an end one of the most sordid periods in Australian corporate and political history, one in which the biggest and most important companies in Australia systematically ripped off their customers, all while politicians defended them. The major banks' retreat from the wealth management sector is in the news after wealth group IWF agreed to snap up National Australia Bank's MLC division in a deal pegged at up to $1.5 billion. The acquisition of National Australia Bank's superannuation advice business, MLC Wealth, will mean Australia's four biggest banks have finally jettisoned the financial advice business that damaged their reputations and cost them billions in customer remediation. And the first of the tech giants has called the bluff equally of the federal government and old media, with Facebook announcing it will stop allowing Australian publishers and users from sharing local and international news on Facebook and Instagram if a proposed code requiring Facebook pay for news posts becomes law. Facebook will also exclude Australia from the rollout of the platform's news tab, which has already seen payments to participating publishers, including in the US, News Corp. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg hit back at Facebook for suggesting the news boycott, while Cabinet colleagues dismissed the threat and vowed to proceed with a mandatory code by the end of the year. And Parliament has signed off an extension to the $100 billion JobKeeper scheme, meaning recipients will begin receiving a lower rate at the end of the month. The payment of $1,500 a fortnight is set to drop, and if you're on JobSeeker, you should also expect a decrease in your payments. From September 28, the payment will fall to $1,200 a fortnight, followed by a further drop at the beginning of January 2021 to $1,000. But that's only if you're working at least 20 hours a week before JobKeeper is introduced. If you're a part-timer, then your payment will fall to $750 a week from the end of the month, then to $650 a week at the start of next year. All extensions are due to expire on March 28, 2021. The changes are due to come into effect in less than four weeks' time, despite the fact that Melbourne is, is currently still under strict lockdown. The government estimates that from October onwards, more people will be on JobKeeper in Victoria than the rest of the country combined. 
Since March, the $550 a fortnight job seeker payment, a rebranded as New Start Allowance, has been effectively doubled to 1100 a fortnight with the introduction of the coronavirus supplement. But from September 25, the supplement will fall to $250 a fortnight, taking the total job seeker payment to just over $800 a fortnight. And while we're on the topic of JobKeeper, this week we had revelations that companies on JobKeeper have been accused of paying CEOs hefty bonuses. Andrew Barkler is estimated to be the highest paid CEO in the country, earning $37 million last financial year. His company, IDP Education, has awarded him a bonus of 683000 whilst receiving $4.4 million from the federal government to subsidise workers' wages. Accent Group, the company behind Athletes Foot and Dr Martens, received $13 million from JobKeeper, and its CEO, Daniel Agostinelli, earned a $1.2 million bonus. The Star Entertainment Group benefited from $64.8 million of JobKeeper. Its CEO received an $830,000 bonus. Ferry operator Sealink was paid more than $8 million of JobKeeper. Its CEO was awarded a bonus of $504,000. And Australia's winemakers have been hit by a second Chinese government probe as trade tensions between the countries escalate. China has started an anti-subsidy investigation into wines and containers holding two litres or less from Australia, according to a statement on the Ministry of Commerce website. The announcement comes less than two weeks after China, the biggest international buyer of Australian wine, said it had started an anti-dumping probe into the same product. The investigation is the latest blow to the Australian industry, which has been hit by slower demand amid global COVID-19 lockdowns, drought-affected vintages, as well as smoke taint and damage from the country's unprecedented bushfire season last summer. China also slapped a ban on Australia's biggest grain exporter, a cooperative with about 4,000 farmer members, after claims customs authorities found pests in a shipment of barley. China Customs suspended barley imports from CBH, based in Western Australia, and run by former BHP iron ore boss Jimmy Wilson. The latest Chinese sanctions sent shockwaves to the Australian grain-growing community as it gears up for what is said to be the best harvest in several years in many regions. And the Future Fund has felt the pain of collapsing share prices and asset values sparked by the COVID-19 pandemic, delivering a return of negative 0.9% for fiscal 2020, as it reported a slight decline in assets over the financial year to $161 billion. However, the nation's sovereign wealth fund says despite the fall, its 10-year return of 9.2% per annum exceeds its benchmark target of 6.1% per year. The target return for 2020 was a positive 3.7%. Handing down its result, the Future Fund said it had rebalanced its portfolio to a neutral stance in the face of volatility and uncertainty in the global economy, and also reduced its risk appetite in its private equity portfolio. And QBE Chief Executive Pat Regan has departed suddenly after an independent investigation into a complaint by a female employee found it breached the company's code of ethics and conduct. No details were provided of the breach, but the company said an external investigation had examined workplace communications that the board concluded did not meet the standards set out in the group's code of ethics and conduct. Mr Regan's departure comes a week after sexual harassment allegations at AMP led to the deposition of the accused AMP capital boss Bo Pahari and the resignation of Chairman David Murray. At the end of the reporting season for Australia's publicly listed companies, it's cleared COVID-19 has been a payday for some, but destructive for others. A quarter of ASX 200 companies reported a loss for 2019-20 financial year. Full-year earnings were down 38% and dividends down 36%. Some retailers and mining stocks saw strong profit growth. Travel stocks fared worse. 
Analysis by Comsec reveals 75% of companies reported statutory net profit of 2019-20, well below the 10-year average of 90% of companies report an annual profit. It is the weakest outcome in the decade we've been tracking interim and final reports with an in-June or December financial year, said Comsec's chief economist, Craig James. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to John Milionis, head of Channel APJ, who will talk about his company's survey showing how companies are finding remote work challenging, and he'll be giving advice on how to manage it. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about the market in the week ahead. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week, and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 